So what follows is an episode that I went on from the Bitcoin Takeover podcast. This is just the beginning. This episode actually ended up being about two and a half hours long. Uh, we generally release episodes that are about an hour, and Jason would have killed me if I tried to have him edit that entire thing. So we did about an hour of it, and you'll be able to hear it live on the Bitcoin Takeover when it is released. So what Vlad does is he records all 10 episodes in a season and releases them all at once. So uh, look for the entire episode there if you want to hear more from Vlad and I. But for now, I just went ahead and I'm going to release the first hour of that. If you are a Patreon member, you can hear the entire episode on Patreon. But just understand that only the first hour is actually edited. So the rest of it is going to have ums and likes and you knows. And all that stuff that we normally try to take out for you, for y'all. But we got the noise out of it anyway. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this crossover episode of the Bitcoin Takeover and the Crypto Basic Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Bitcoin Takeover Podcast. I am Vlad, and today my guest is Brent Philbin, who is a professional poker player. He recently went to South by Southwest in, is it Austin, Texas? I don't want to mess it up. Yes, Austin. Definitely Austin, Texas. I, I had to think twice because before this, I was thinking of San Antonio, Texas, which is, as you told me, one hour away. But mm -hmm. it's interesting that you have these cryptocurrency-related events. And to me, it's also fascinating to observe how not very much of what's going on is about Bitcoin. And this might be due to big companies like Block One with EOS or maybe Tron investing a lot of money in their marketing departments and trying to drive up adoption. So how much of SXSW was about Bitcoin? So not... A whole lot of South by Southwest was about Bitcoin. Now, I didn't attend every keynote and I didn't go to every everything, but they invited us as we also have a podcast, the Crypto Basic Podcast. And we, we went down and we kept trying to check out the interesting panels. Like there, we, we go to a, a panel talking about the role of blockchain in taking care of poverty. And what we found was Two of the four panelists were shilling their project. One of them actually had a lot of interesting things to say. His name was uh, Vinay Gupta. He was uh, part of the original development team on Ethereum, but I, I know this is a Bitcoin podcast, so I'm going to stay away from that. But nobody was a Bitcoin uh, developer. Nobody was a Bitcoin you know, shill or supporter or anything like that on that panel. Uh, the governance panel had nothing to do with Bitcoin. And the only real direct correlation to Bitcoin that I found there at this conference was there were posters on all of the uh, like the columns and stuff that had the Bitcoin logo that said, if you listen to music, you get free Bitcoin, which I just assumed was a scam. I mean, I never really looked into it. I did take a picture of it. I can't remember the name of the service, but anytime I see something like that, I'm like, eh, um, yeah, I'm, I'm good. I don't, I don't know if I want to look into that, but it could have been a thing. I don't know. Uh, but they, definitely Bitcoin was underrepresented as far as its market cap, but also you know, I've been to a bunch of conferences, I've spoken at a couple, and the caliber of guests was not particularly high. And the panels were all about like, what's the next big thing in blockchain and stuff like that, it, rather than, I don't know, exploring it for the way it is. Yeah, I guess that's what happens when most of the people in attendance are potential investors. And sometimes they're also finance people coming from various firms and they get there specifically to find out something that can bring them a lot of money as opposed mm -hmm. to having an audience which consists of enthusiasts and academics and people who are actually interested in the developments and the technology. And you have reminded me of a conference which I attended last year in London. And I'm not going to complain because I basically got there for free I didn't have to worry about anything. I was paid to report on the specific conference as my employer at the time was one of the organizers. But it was interesting to see how the opening act had one guy who went on stage and said, the next big thing in mining is Zcash. 
you should stop mining Bitcoin. It's not profitable. They're going to have a halving of rewards. So you should just stop mining Bitcoin and get into Zcash because you see Zcash has these advantages. And look, I have these graphs which show that you're going to get greater rewards. And it just went on and on and on about why Zcash is the better coin to mine. And in my mind, I was looking at it thinking it's not even the best of the privacy coins. <laughs> yeah. Most of its users have no idea how to conceal their transactions. So they use it on exchanges and they use it basically in the same way that you use Bitcoin. It's transparent. It can be seen on the public ledger. They don't pay extra to have their confidential transactions or shielded. I'm not sure what they call them in Zcash. Yeah, it's something similar to, to that. It's in a default, not private state, which has always been weird to me with the privacy coins. Like you want them it, just being deciding, hey, I'm going to make this private already signals that there's a reason that you're making it private, right? So that in and of itself is non-private. Not that they've got privacy incorrect. I think, I mean, zero knowledge proofs probably work. I don't know. And I've never really, I'm not a developer, but it seems like, you know, people seem to say they do. I don't know, but yeah, Zcash is not uh, part of my portfolio in any way. Well, they, um, to my knowledge, they don't even have some kind of coin join system like Bitcoin does. And it blows my mind that there's so much money in this industry and you have coins that are worth billions of dollars, but you have such bad wallet implementations and you also have very few knowledgeable developers. And I'm, I'm mostly speaking of altcoins, but also Bitcoin projects that never get the proper funding to actually grow. Yeah, so it's kind like of interesting People who invest spot. in these don't really care about the technology and how it's going to evolve and grow over time. They, they're just in for a quick buck. It's all about short-term gains and that's it. Some kind of speculation. Nothing excites me more than the technology behind everything, what it has the ability to change and why I could change it. You know, everything that I've done since I got into the space podcast or otherwise has always been about the technology. I, I couldn't even tell you what Bitcoin's price is today. I couldn't tell you the price of any of the coins in my portfolio. I couldn't even tell you what the price of my total portfolio is because I just don't check it very often. I am more interested in learning about the things that are going on around it. And I think it kind of sucks that Bitcoin is harder to develop on because they don't have any sort of a war chest that they can just give away to people. And they're still coming up with some amazing things. Like the Lightning Network, if you really think about it, is a really awesome innovation. And it's, it was an innovative way to solve a problem that was always going to rear its head, I think. Like the, not the problem of the block sizes, but the problem of eventually one group of people is going to say, I signed up for this. And the other group of people is going to say, I signed up for this. And they're going to come to a head and be stuck in the middle and you've got to find some sort of a compromise. And to me, that, that you know, something like the, the Lightning Network is awesome like that. And we're going to see all kinds of interesting innovations on top of Bitcoin or other projects all the way until we're dead. So I'm interested to see where it goes because I don't, I don't see any doubt in my mind that the future is around Bitcoin. And it's tough for, you know, you talk to these random fund managers in the United States that control billions of dollars and they tell you, oh, crypto is just a fad. It's not going anywhere. Uh, look at it. It was a bubble. It popped in value. Well, uh, if you ask somebody in Venezuela what they think about Bitcoin, they're going to be pretty happy. So that's where, that's where it starts. You're not going to stop any, nobody's going to use Bitcoin over PayPal here now, but not in the United States anyway. Are they going to use Bitcoin over whatever alternative PayPal they have in a very small country in Africa? Of course. So it's going to be really cool to see it come and start gaining traction from the places that the rich people don't think it's going to gain traction from. Yeah. And what's so exciting about Bitcoin is that there is so much coming up. By the time we will be posting this podcast, as I have this season format, and I have to fill in every spot before I release all the episodes all at once, like Netflix. But by the time that I will be <laughs> posting this, I guess we will have some, some kind of proposal for Schnorr signatures in Bitcoin. And we have waited so long for such a long time to have Schnorr signatures because they were patented and we had to wait for patents to expire. And basically, we are going to have the transaction outputs being merged together to get better 
confidentiality and privacy. And also they're going to take up a smaller amount of data in the blocks. So it blows my mind when I think about it that instead of having bigger blocks, we're going to have smaller transactions. So the same one megabyte blocks or two megabytes with SegWit are not going to be filled as easily as they were before, just because the efficiency of the data output is getting better. Yeah, and that's going to continue to happen. I mean, look at, look at your computer. You can put on an SD card the size of your finger the data that it, that it would have taken you an entire room to fill up not that long ago. The solution wasn't, let's put 17 floppy disks in a computer. It was, let's come up with a better way of reading data off the floppy disks so that we can put the data on something that's not as inefficient as a floppy disk. The floppy disk was the best that was available at the time. That didn't mean that the option to put 17 drives on your computer was a good idea. So it, that's one of my favorite kind of, I don't know if that's a metaphor or a comparison or whatever. I'm sure I saw it in a meme somewhere. But to me, that's super easy to see. And when you go into the like Bitcoin block size debate, I'm, I've gone through a little bit of a paradigm shift. When I first started, to me, I was like, well, wait a minute, that's faster and it's better and it's cheaper. Let's go with that one. I didn't understand the network effect that Bitcoin has as an advantage over just about everything else. If you go back and listen to my early podcasts, I've said some real dumb stuff about Bitcoin and I've completely changed my mind on that entirely. The network effect is the most important thing on these coins and it will continue to, or the projects or coins, whatever you want to call them, it'll continue to be the most important effect because even coins is big. Ethereum Classic got 51% attacked and it was, I don't know, it had, it was, 13th or something in overall market cap, they were as pretty big coin with a lot of developers behind them and they were easily attacked. So that's why it's so important when money's at risk that a system becomes kind of, I don't want to say conservative because that's got this weird connotation now of being like when you're talking about politics, but, but conservative is in like, if we put this implementation in, what are the different effects of this thing that we're putting into the system, how can they, what are they going to do in 30 years? Because we're talking about a lot of money and a lot of value. And if we put something in that screws it up, well, you know, we need, we need to know, we need to test, we need to make sure we're doing the right thing. So um, I think 15 years from now, the, the, the idea that putting just bigger blocks on there was the answer is going to be kind of laughable, but maybe not. I could be wrong. I'm willing to be wrong and all that stuff. So uh, I guess maybe none of us are technical, but I, I want to just acknowledge your contributions. And I forgot to say this in the introduction, but you are the host of the Crypto Basic podcast, which makes this a crossover episode that we can both upload for our shows. And maybe that you can release this and it helps me send out a teaser for the second season of the podcast. And it's yeah. great when we get together and we exchange experiences because. I guess the main point of us doing podcasts is to learn from other people. I don't think it's about having a thousand or a hundred thousand listeners and becoming popular and whatever. It's just a personal project. It's a way of fulfilling some kind of curiosity that we have and an intrinsic pursuit of knowledge and maybe networking. Yeah, I like the networking aspect. I love meeting the interesting people that are involved in this in this space. I love what happens when you're at a conference. I love the the camaraderie there, and I like when I'm you know I'm wearing my you know my crypto basic T-shirt. That why we have podcast T-shirts. I don't know. It's not like it's not like it's a normal startup company where we're making any money. We've lost thousands of dollars on our podcast because we're too lazy to edit our own episodes and we pay an editor. But the <laughs> if I'm at I just happened yesterday. I was getting a, I was getting a taco and I was checking out and the guy looked at my shirt and the Bitcoin logo is inside of like a microphone for our logo. And he's like, Oh, you know about Bitcoin? And he starts to talk to me and we, we chat for a little bit about, about Bitcoin. And it was really cool. He, he takes a card. He's excited to see the podcast and Hey, maybe he's even listening to this right now and he's remembering, Oh my God, he got a taco for me. That's great. And that's the kind of interesting thing that I like to see. And I like to see it in that way and not the way of, hey, that's that guy that told me to buy that ICO and I lost all my money because nothing could be further from the truth when you talk about what we say on our podcast. We are very, very, very much like we, we say we like you know a project here. We say we like a project there, but 
like I said about the, we don't know, we don't know anything about the prices and we actively tell people you can't beat the markets, you know, stop trying to follow crypto YouTubers. If anybody actually knew how to properly beat the Bitcoin market, they would not be posting that advice on YouTube for free. So if we were here for the downloads, we would have quit a long time ago. And, and I'm sure you would have too, because the downloads fell with the, with the market. Yeah, I guess it's good that we got into this kind of territory because I tend to be kind of agnostic when it comes to technical analysis. I see a lot of people drawing charts and trying to predict where it's going to get. But whenever it seems way too predictable, it turns out to be the other way around. So mm -hmm. I don't believe in this kind of patterns and beliefs that when it goes that way, then it's going to form that kind of shape and it necessarily should go that way because I don't know, maybe that there are bots involved to some extent. And I'm sure there are a lot of people create bots to maximize their profits, but I don't think it's that easy. If it was that easy with analyzing and sometimes I watch tone vase, I think he's the best in the game in terms of understanding what goes on. And he worked at wall street. So I actually agree. He must have learned something. I don't watch people like, I don't know. There, there's a YouTube channel which I sometimes watch just because they mention some of some of our news articles from Crypto Insider, and the name of the channel is Crypto Daily or no Altcoin Daily or something. And sometimes the guy looks at charts and tries to explain what's going on. And I tend to not believe in any of this. I yeah, personally don't believe if there was that. If it was so easy to predict the market, then everyone would make a lot of money, which doesn't really happen. When you see stories about people becoming millionaires from trading Bitcoin, then you're going to see a thousand other stories about people losing thousands of dollars, trying to make some kind of gains and selling at the bottom after buying at the top. You see that in any industry? The survivorship fallacy is really out there with with anything and even in your standard wall street or your or whatever the commodities markets or anything like that you'll hear the story about these guys called the turtle traders that were the first ones to try to follow trends and they would they made money and then you don't hear any stories about any of the other people that tried to do what they did and they lost i do i haven't watched a lot of tone based stuff but when he was on Doug Polk's show, and I, I watched Doug Polk because uh, I thought Doug Polk was the best poker player in the game when he was playing. And he was thinking about the game on a different level than everybody else, but he was putting a lot of time in. And he, he bet Tone Bay's uh, $10,000 that Bitcoin would never drop below $6,000 again. And Tone Bay's was very, he's like, you know, I don't, I don't even think it's close. And he specifically talked about why he thought that. I don't know if he has a good method or whatever the case is. I'm sure there is some self-fulfilling prophecy in the technical analysis field where if everyone looks at a chart and sees a certain pattern or everyone that likes to be a technical YouTube analyst, they see a certain cat pattern or Bart Simpson or something, whatever they're called, and they all see the same signal and they're like, okay, that means we have to buy then if everyone's buying, then the price is going to go up and organically because everybody saw that same signal. So maybe there's a little bit of that to it. But if you look at the experts, the experts, I'm putting up air quotes here because you can't see this, that decide, hey, we're going to make a Bitcoin price prediction. <laughs> and then you, you take that, you know, you give it a couple of years and you take their predictions and you put them on a chart. Nobody's even close. They're spread out just as you would expect them to be spread out on a graph with standard deviations and everything. And like a couple of people get it right. And then now guess what? Everyone thinks they're the experts because they were the ones that got it right. So it's kind of weird to look at, especially when, you know, I, I assume like you do and I do, you think that Bitcoin is a good investment. And that's why I've chosen to put more money than anybody reasonably should, like as far as percentage of my net worth, I'm not that rich, but into Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies because I don't, I, I don't know what's going to happen next week. I don't care. I don't look at the prices. I'm fairly certain in five or 10 years that I'm going to have more fiat value in that portfolio than I do today. But I could be wrong about that too. I have no idea. So you have to be able to take that risk. And if you think you know better than a computer algorithm can, and that's the thing that no one's ever been able to give me a good answer for other than the self-fulfilling prophecy. Nothing I've seen in technical analysis couldn't be programmed into a computer, at least as far as what little 
exposure I have on, on crypto YouTube. And I don't know. I look at that and I'm, I'm not a computer programmer, but I think if they can say, hey, this line and this line intersect, it means buy. That's not even that advanced of a thing to program into a computer, I'm pretty sure. So I don't know. Nobody's ever been able to give me a good answer as to why a trader can outperform an algorithm. In my mind, it's like trying to predict the weather and you try to look at the clouds and you say the wind is blowing in that direction. So these two clouds are going to meet at some point and it's going to rain, but it doesn't always happen. There is always a chance to be wrong about it because the nature of it in this particular example, we are speaking of mother nature is unpredictable and there is no way to actually tell that something is going to happen. But we as human beings tend to have this kind of hot hand fallacy. When somebody gets something right multiple times in a row, then we believe that they, they are gifted in a certain way and they, they are able to see something that we are not capable of. That You see that in Wall Street funds all the time, mutual fund managers that outperform the market especially the ones that outperform it the most, invariably in the next few years have a mean reversion and they perform under the market. And the fallacy behind, uh, behind a mean reversion is also kind of annoying too because I say they had a mean reversion and now you think, okay, because this person got, they outperformed the market by three times, that means they're guaranteed to lose next year. No, they could keep outperforming the market. But when you, would, when you look at that stuff, when you look at the data and you look, get it backwards, you're always going to see the mean reversion at some point. You just can't predict it. So just because a coin's come up tails 10 times in a row doesn't mean it's any more likely to come up heads. But sometimes a coin will flip tails 10 times in a row. And that's what I believe the most profitable traders or the people who get the right prediction on the prices are actually doing rather than, you know, making good prediction. Now, can they make a more informed prediction? Sure. I would like to see people say, look, I think there's a 70% chance that Bitcoin will be above this price number, a 10% chance it'll be below this or whatever, just like they do with rain. But if you took a weatherman and you asked them, is it going to rain today or not? They wouldn't be any better at predicting the weather than a random coin flip would because the actual act of raining is extremely unpredictable. So they give it a chance. They say there's a per- this percentage chance of rain today. And I, it's the same thing with everything. I mean, there's going to be blackjack players that never learned how to count cards and are black are lifetime winners at blackjack and think that they you know they they know something about like the way the dealer winks at them or if they spin around in their chair four times maybe they won't go busto on the next card that they pull out and for whatever reason it works because the random chance is aligned with their confirmation bias but they are in the long run going to lose just as likely as the person who's never had a winning session in their entire life at blackjack so it's the I've been around gambling so much and I've seen so much of variance and stuff like that, that it sometimes you can see that and assign the wrong thing to it. You can think that you are smarter than the average person or that you've beaten a game that's unbeatable. And that's uh, there's a rake in poker. There's a rake in the casino games and there's a rake in trading. There are fees. Those fees add up. You have to be right so often for those fees to not actually start to pile on top of each other. Yeah. That pretty much sums it up. And also, I was about to ask you if you ever went to a Bitcoin-specific conference in the last couple of years. I guess it was harder in 2017 to find any kind of Bitcoin-specific event, as at the time there was this narrative that Ethereum was the next Bitcoin, and there was to be some kind of flippening where Ethereum takes over Bitcoin, because they were saying that there's nothing that Ethereum cannot do, except that they overinflated their supply and they proved that they're not able, even with their central planning and all that foundation stuff, they're not able to actually fulfill their promises and deliver some kind of functional scalability in time. And at the same time, you had all these people who are going to conferences in 2018, bragging about how much money they made in 2017 and thinking that it's going to go on like that. Then again, it's about that hot hand fallacy, but also giving indirect advice to people in attendance to invest and maybe put some money into that promising little project from 
this obscure little place which ha happens to be a crypto haven like Malta or Singapore, where startups are just able to go there and fork maybe Bitcoin or any other coin, add a couple of features to say that they have fixed the scalability problem and then shill it and brag about how capable and intelligent and able to promote the future of cryptocurrencies are. Well, I never went to a Bitcoin-specific conference. I have been to really bad conferences and I've been to really good conferences. I don't share the, I guess, disdain for Ethereum. Uh, I think that there's going to very likely be a future where interoperability is important. There are going to be things that Bitcoin is not particularly good at. And there are going to be things that other projects are not particularly good at. But the end result is either Bitcoin will end up adopting and becoming better at those, or they're just not going to be used for everything. Do you need every little transaction at Starbucks to be on the blockchain and be immutable? Probably not. Do you want your supply to be actually having a hard cap and not being inflationary? I don't know, maybe, probably. And there's a lot of different questions that are going to be solved at some point as we go forward. So, but I don't think the answer is transactions per second. If the answer was transactions per second and that was all it was, then Nano or EOS or Tron would be king because they targeted their entire development towards whatever big transactions per second number is. And they forgot a lot of what was important along the way. And, uh, for, you know, in, in EOS's case, decentralization, they were just like, eh, you know, forget that. We don't need that anymore. We're, we're just going to go with these. These guys over here can make the decisions. And, uh, but don't worry, our transactions per second are really high. It's cool. So the development really took a weird turn. And in the end, I don't think you need that many transactions per second unless you're trying to run a decentralized exchange or something like that where you need to have nothing can scale to the point where a decentralized exchange would work right now. Even the, those coins that can do thousands of transactions per second, that's nowhere near an, enough transactions per second if everything is going to be on the blockchain and on some sort of side chain. So everybody focused on kind of the wrong thing when they were trying to improve Bitcoin. And, and there were people who are improved upon Bitcoin, not improve Bitcoin itself. The people who are improving Bitcoin are succeeding in a reasonable manner. You can make some semantic arguments about the Lightning Network and its centralization, but you also have to admit that the Lightning Network worked. It did exactly what it was supposed to do. It made the transactions that are being used on the Lightning Network significantly easier. And people passed around the Lightning Network torch on Twitter. And the argument for it's not decentralized enough is interesting in and of itself decentralization seems like it's the answer. And, and this is from, uh, I heard this from Vinay Gupta and I loved it when he was talking. Decentralization seems like it has to be the answer because all of our centralized systems are completely corrupt. So when we, we look at our centralized systems, we say, well, these are broken because they're centralized. So we need to decentralize them. Is it the answer though? Do you need everything decentralized? Because then, you know, what are, what are you going to do about the two, you know, rednecks in Texas that decide to, put a bunch of carcinogens in the air in their backyard and what are you going to do to the city there? How are you going to handle that? So it's going to be an interesting road to the future where transparency in something like politics is super important or transparency for corporations is super important. But at the same time, the individuals need to control their rights. And that's why the semi-transparent nature of Bitcoin seems like such a good solution. I think there is also this kind of theory which says that every altcoin is trying to experiment with a new technology that was not accepted to be built on top of Bitcoin. So they're conducting this large-scale public experiment, which allows people to invest in it, to test its potential and scalability and virtues as a technology, so that it eventually, if it succeeds, it can become a sidechain in Bitcoin. And I've heard that discussion with privacy features, I know that there is a lot of work being put into bringing the Mimblewimble protocol into Bitcoin as mm -hmm. a sidechain. And they had Grin and what's the other one? Beam, which are pretty promising in themselves. They, they have very interesting technology. They have a very small output in terms of bytes. They don't occupy too much space on the blockchain and that's their 
attraction point, I guess, because with everything else that came before confidential transactions, it, it was about like stacking together 50 other transactions. It was heavy, burdensome on the blockchain. And now you have something which is the exact opposite. It's groundbreaking in this regard. Also, let me think about something else. I think Blockstream is working on a simplified smart contract language that they're going to be using on their sidechain, which is called Liquid. And they say that the language for it is so easy to understand and so easy to use that the instruction set can be printed on a t-shirt. I guess that's kind of gimmicky. Well, okay. I, I didn't know about that one, but that's that's kind of funny. Yeah, I, I think it's called... Wait, blocks. I, I got to look it up. It's very early in the morning here. And <laughs> it's hard for me to remember names. So Blockstream Smart Contract Language. Simplicity. It was so easy. Simplicity. Yeah. Okay. It's actually brilliant that some people have looked into a simplified language for smart contracts. That's also meant to be easy to read, easy to write, and harder to corrupt. As when you have more instructions, it's more likely for the interpretation to be flawed, even when it's code. Mm -hmm. So. How many little issues with smart contracts have led to big problems in the in the crypto space when you think about it? Oh, look at Ethereum. You have millions of dollars being managed in smart contracts that sometimes are buggy. Mm-hmm. And there's also the issue of immutability in smart contracts. So right now, I don't think there is any way to edit any kind of provisions that you have in the contracts. Once you sign them, you have to follow the exact instructions that you have signed, even though there might be some parts that you disagree with in time, or there might be unforeseen consequences that you're not able to see when you sign the contract. And the consensus about it in terms of development is that you should have some kind of way to mediate. So to have a bipartisan or multi-stakeholder discussion and say, how about we change this? Because that's also how it works in the real world. When you have contracts, you can amend them and change provisions if you agree with all the stakeholders involved. And that's going to be one of the big features when they bring this kind of, what should you call it? Editing feature or amendments to smart contracts. That's something that they are working on right now and I find it fascinating. And I know that at some point we're going to have smart contracts in Bitcoin that are not going to be Turing complete like Ethereum's, but they're going to be much more robust and more reliable just because the network is stronger. And if they're going to conduct it on a side chain, then they're not going to have any kind of scalability issues. Well, you've mentioned that all the altcoins kind of are becoming side chains to, to Bitcoin. I actually kind of see a future where that is accurate, but maybe the definition of sidechain is a little bit weird. Do they work with Bitcoin is the, is the question. And I think that one of the most important parts to mass adoption is going to be interoperability, especially if different coins get adopted in different spaces. But when it all comes back down to like Bitcoin is, has put it, like it would have to really mess up in order to do anything bad or as far as like, you know, gaining and losing the network effect, but it's already been through those, those tests. If Bitcoin was breakable, it would have been broken. Um, you know, the, the biggest reward in the world is there for anybody who can figure out how to, you know, either mine the blocks or find private keys or something like that. Uh, the rewards have been there in other projects too, which is why you saw the, the hack with Ethereum and the, the DAO or something like the, the parity multi-sig wallet where they just lost all these millions of dollars worth of funds into nothingness. So, so I think while they may not agree on everything and there may be lots of stalemates that the Bitcoin developers tend to want to see the solutions before they implement them. And a lot of people just, you know, fuck it, we'll do it live. And they, they push something out to their contract. And you have quote, this guy, Justin, uh, whatever his name is, from Verge, he, he grew up in like my town in Florida. This little, it was not a particularly special town. Nobody smart comes from there. I'm not smart. I came from there. Definite proof. But he 
he accidentally hard forked his entire project because he like copy pasted some code and it didn't work. So there's so many like random things that happen and people are going to be frustrated by the speed that something like Bitcoin moves at compared to, you know, Justin Sun making an announcement of announcement every week and making it seem like he's got all these things super hyped and buying BitTorrent, which was never a profitable company as it was. So that's why every time I get excited about everything else, I think back to Bitcoin and I'm like, well, how does this, how does this work? So I do get very easily excited about altcoin projects, but very few of them are now making their way into, I guess, past my BS sensor and into my portfolio. And the ones that do, I'm really interested in how they're handling governance because I'm not sure that one coin, one vote is the, is the way to do things or one mining rig, one vote or one hash, uh, one vote or whatever you want to, whatever you want to call the equivalent on Bitcoin. Um, I don't even think that one person, one vote is necessarily the right way to do things. There's some weird mesh of democracy that we haven't found yet. Bitcoin hasn't solved it. Ethereum hasn't solved it. EOS hasn't solved it. it no country solved it as far as I can tell. There's some system where the group can make good decisions as long as certain checks and balances are in place and the game theory is thought out properly. So there, right now, every, every system can be gamed. That's why people always yell at Bitcoin about being centralized because there's the mining pools, right? Well, the mining pools game the system as in like the risk is too high for somebody to mine on their own. So they found the way to mine in pools. And they continue to change their incentives to get people to go to their pools so they have more influence over the network. Uh, if you look at something like EOS, where they've got a group of 20 people that just get to say whatever, yeah, that's fine. We'll give him his money back. It's cool. They didn't solve it either. There's no different, nothing different on EOS than there is in you know the Supreme Court. So the governance and or the effect that blockchain distributed ledger technologies or Bitcoin specifically are going to have on politicians or politics is going to be really, really, really interesting to watch go down. And whenever some group of politicians makes the mistake of, sure, yeah, we'll use Bitcoin or something similar for our campaign finance, <laughs> they're going to be in for a, a rude awakening. Because I think a lot of times when a politician is doing something scummy, they don't think it's scummy. So when we can actually track down what the source of their, their scumminess, it's going to be interesting. Oh, yeah. I noticed that there is that, candidate for U.S. presidency. I think his name is Andrew Yang. Yes. And they found out about last week. And by the time this gets posted, it will be like last month or something. But they found out that he is a Bitcoiner and he was tweeting about Bitcoin back in 2013, which is fascinating. It might be the first case when a candidate accepts Bitcoin as a donation, or it might be one of the many instances where you have politicians who forget about their roots once they go mainstream and they try to appeal to the largest number and be a person of the masses. I also think, what's his name? Beto O'Rourke or something? Yeah, the, from the, Texas. Yeah, the, uh, yep, the Texas guy, yep. Yeah, also him. He used to be part of that hacker group in the 90s. So he might know about Bitcoin. He might be involved in it. It's interesting when the generations change and you have this wave of young people, not necessarily young in the sense that they might be 20 or something, but they're still young and they come with fresh views and an openness to something new like Bitcoin. And it's going to be interesting to me to see how governments react when the technology matures and the adoption grows. As I don't think in the West there is a, an intrinsic incentive to seek sound money. I tend to tell this joke that nobody really wakes up in the morning one day and says, you know what I need in my life? It's sound money because I don't like the dollars <laughs> in my pocket. I don't like the way they allow me to buy pretty much anything in the world and people yeah. will happily take my dollars because they know that it's the leading currency. But in countries like you mentioned Venezuela and also Palestine, which is not even recognized with full rights by the international community. And you also have oppressed countries of the world or ones that are under trade embargoes or are part mm -hmm. of political schemes that maybe 
terrible for their sustainability. And I'm thinking of North Korea right now. I don't think we should be defending their regime. But at the same time, when they get into Bitcoin, they make a statement to the international community. It's a way of saying, we are avoiding your financial system. We're not willing to engage in the same game that you're playing. And there might be a point in the future where you'll feel obliged to trade with us whenever Bitcoin goes mainstream, if ever. Because I also have this conspiracy theory that U.S. government is trying to actively discourage the use of Bitcoin because it's very much against their interest in terms of foreign policy. Yeah, I mean, it certainly is. So it's super arrogant for for the United people in the United States who deal in dollars to think that the dollar is always going to be the global reserve currency. It is now. And yes, it does. It, because of that, it means that the dollar is the most stable fiat, probably, if you think about it in terms of stability. But we have, <laughs> we have the, the mass problem currently leading our country. And that problem isn't like, it isn't going away anytime soon. And that's corruption in politics. And people were so sick of it that their knee jerk reaction to, to Hillary being kind of like the exemplification of corruption in politics was to elect a reality TV star that is one of the most corrupt people on the planet. So I don't want to get too far into politics, but I'll talk about Andrew Yang really quick. I, he won't go very far as far as like getting any traction. He didn't have enough of a enough of a following to get like a Bernie Sanders type effect. He's not really a Democrat. So he, because he, in the United States, we have two political parties, which is the dumbest thing I've ever seen because no, neither political party is ever going to represent my own personal uh, feelings. So Bernie Sanders is not really a, a Democrat either. He's just running on the Democrat ticket because you have to either be a Republican or a Democrat in order to get elected. So Andrew Yang is very similar. He's, he's progressive. He wants universal basic income. And yes, he is very crypto friendly because he, like, he likes Bitcoin, which is cool. He was also at South by Southwest. Now I said South by Southwest crypto section was bad. Unfortunately, I only had a pass to the interactive platform because that's what they gave us for press. But I, I wish I could have gone and seen Andrew Yang talk. He is an, he is an interesting speaker uh, with, with very little chance to actually get anywhere. And the same thing with, uh, with Beto. He's, he did the unthinkable and almost unseated Republican in Texas, but that doesn't mean that he can actually do anything in the political landscape. But yes, back to actual cryptocurrency. I don't know why I'm talking about politics. You got me going off here. The, the arrogance that the U.S. dollar is going to always be the global reserve currency is something I see in so many people who just dismiss the idea of cryptocurrency or the idea that the United States is the greatest country in the world. And they, they're, they're missing it. They're burying their heads in the sand. And I would be very surprised if in 20 years we don't get our act together if uh, we are no longer the, the global reserve currency. It's like that right now. But we are being passed in just about every way by China. And why are we being passed by China? Because authoritarian centralized regimes, as long as they're not killing people, kind of work in a much more efficient way than a democratic republic that has the sown seeds of hate that can't come to any conclusion or situation. So much like Bitcoin Cash had to fork off of Bitcoin because there was a, everything had come to a head and there was, we need to do this or we need to do this. I signed up for this. I signed up for this. Time to break. There's some break with our politics. And I wish Andrew Yang was the one to do it. You know, as far as my political leanings, I'm just going to vote for whoever is not Donald Trump, which kind of sucks. But that's the situation we're in. And I would love to see politicians be required to put their transactions with all of their donors on the Bitcoin blockchain. That would be the happiest moment of my life. Do we need to have every coffee purchased on the on blockchain? No. But would I like to know that our president bought a picture of himself with charity money? Yeah, that'd be cool. I would like to be able to see that real time and make fun of it on Twitter or whatever the case. So Yeah, but going back to the idea of a world reserve currency, I think US dollar was brilliant in its way of imposing and trying to come out as what should I present it? Uh, I'm not very good with words so early in the morning, but I know that there were moments when European allies were basically handing their gold reserves for dollars and they were being 
told at the time that there is always the possibility to get back their gold if they give if they return the dollars and then they abolished the gold standard and that was the end of it and i i think the united states of america right now is sitting on the largest reserves of gold in the world and also in relation to china you have a larger military you have many more satellites being deployed and functioning in the space so you basically own the planet nobody wants to go to war with you and also if you tell some something to your allies about conducting certain policies they're not going to really think twice or rebel so whatever happens in terms of diplomacy or international affairs in the United States it's there's this saying that whenever the US sneezes the rest of the world gets a cold <laughs> yeah okay that's that's a gr- I haven't actually heard that before but we've got herpes at this point then because the <laughs> I hope nobody else catches what we have I I really do but you know what you're right the rest look at uh, look at Brazil Brazil elected like Trump 2.0 could they they have elected somebody like that without without the i guess success I, don't, I hate calling it success but could they have done that without the success of somebody in our country i don't know and the things that the united states does may not have survived if we weren't an imperialistic regime which is sad and the thing about gold having all the gold in the world only matters if the gold the world still wants gold so i don't know how long gold is going to be the most important reserve thing that people covet but i don't wear a single piece of gold jewelry um i don't think my girlfriend does either and i don't think it, I don't think it looks good i don't need it i'm not going to ever put it on on a ring or anything like that and i don't know if that's just me or if it's more my generation but gold is only as valuable as the people wanting it and this is the same thing you look at how could gold possibly lose its value but at the same time how could bitcoin possibly have gained its value it's the exact same on the opposite end of the coin bitcoin achieved its value because people wanted to trade it for goods and services that's as, as simple as it gets and there's an entire network backing it of people that have a vested interest and are spending money in creating it and mining it or at least finding the blocks for it the same thing happened for gold at one point but is it always going to be that way i, I mean i don't think so that they're abolishing the gold standard was kind of a necessary move and there's a reason the rest of the world kind of joined in on that but gold is also extremely volatile it's not it's not that much less volatile than than cryptocurrencies are or bitcoin specifically because it's deflationary and that's one of the one of the interesting things about bitcoin is it's deflationary so i'm wondering if its value will ever settle but at the same time it can just be divided further down so maybe that has a an effect of creating more kind of creating more money not really i don't know it's tough quantitative easing was <laughs> was an interesting thing to watch happen i didn't know much about politics then and i only know about them now because i need to argue with my friends that might think that bitcoin's a scam or something like that so that's how i learned that's my favorite one bitcoin's a scam <laughs> that's the number one argument against it right like they somebody comes to you and they say oh bitcoin's a scam it's a pyramid scheme and you have to take 45 minutes to 4 hours to explain to somebody why that's not even humanly possible like the, the way this works it, there isn't a scam now people can use it to scam you but, but the the protocol the code itself being a scam is kind of hilarious if you understand how it works i think i disagree with you in relation to gold and its value i think in the history of humankind there is no greater asset or kind of money that we had because it's expensive to extract from the ground it has these qualities which allow no loss so when you melt it into another shape or form you're not going to have any losses and it has been the main currency for trades for hundreds of years maybe thousands i've read articles by nick sabo which go back thousands of years to how people have perceived value and it was always about scarcity nothing is going to ever have value unless it's scarce it's hard to get mm-hmm. so if you have a limited supply of anything then there is a greater incentive for people to put more value on it if that makes sense 
give away many more of their disposable assets to have that. And scarcity works as a form of money just because it incentivizes people to get involved in trades and collaborate and have this kind of economic activity that is cyclical. Whereas the idea of inflating the currency just because you decide to do so as a central government and you have your central bank to print more money actually discourages economic activity. You can stop thinking of trade and thinking in terms of how do we make these rich people who maybe were smart at some point and they have made very good deals and they ended up holding a lot of money. How do we make them invest their money here in our community? It takes away that component and makes people rant at the government and say, why don't you inflate the currency and make their money worth less? But that's toxic for the entire society. If you think about it, I agree with that. We should have more ways to trade and we should think more in terms of how to engage in economic activity than to always wait for the government to somehow fix this mess. And I can understand the idea that it's easier to get out of recessions if, or depressions or any kind of financial crisis if you have this kind of currency that can be inflated. But at the same time, I think these benefits are not big enough or weighty enough to just take away this component of scarcity. And that's why gold is always going to be valuable to us because we have established that there is nothing else that has all these qualities. It has all the qualities of sound money, maybe except for portability. It's very hard to carry gold and costs you a lot of money to get it across the border. And there is no way to run away with the gold reserves of a country unless you have some very good arrangements. But some people have tried. Oh, yeah. And they will keep <laughs> on trying. A lot of Romania's gold reserves were stolen by the Russians after World War II, and we never got them back. But that's a different kind of story. That's another rabbit hole. And I, I will uh, so right now in the middle of financial sanctions and the rest of the world is trying to make them feel oppressed and make them lose a lot of money from their GDP and basically starve the population like they do in Venezuela right now, hoping that the regime will crumble. But Russia has a lot of resources and they, while they are in diplomatic war with the rest of Europe, they sell natural gas to everybody. And they can negotiate deals which are actually in their favor. And that's something that the United States will never like. Because Germany, for example, as the most powerful state in Europe, is hypocritical about its diplomatic stance. On one hand, they say, you are the bad actors of our continent and we are going to punish you. And on the other, they negotiate deals for natural resources. But also Russia is stacking a lot of gold in the last few years, they're basically buying a lot of gold every month, like billions of dollars worth of gold. And they're, I think they're preparing for a collapse of the, of the financial system, where they're going to be the ones to create the new US dollar and deliver to the world a, a kind of currency that they can trust. Or they're trying to build their own parallel economy and establish their own sphere of influence around the world and basically have this kind of Cold War 2.0 where you have parallel markets and parallel worlds which are not necessarily isolated from each other. You can still trade with the other side, but they're going to have a different kind of currency which has different values and maybe in time it's going to get more traction because they don't really need to finance huge military operations. So they don't print as much money as the United States do. And they might be in better relations to China. And they might attract Korea and other countries, which the United States is trying very hard to be in good terms with. And I know this is a Bitcoin podcast, and I'm going to get yeah. to that Bitcoin part. I think Bitcoin is revolutionary because it, it is politically agnostic. It doesn't care who uses it and for what purpose. And nation states that are actually smart in this regard can bypass this entire financial system, which comes back to the United States of America and whatever their foreign policy is. They can basically avoid 
all the sanctions and all the bureaucracy and all the proper processes involved and establish the kind of trade which is very much akin to having gold and storing it, except for the fact that you can send any amount worth of Bitcoin to the other side of the world for about, I'm not sure what the transaction fee is right now, but it's about 10 cents during this market. Yeah. There, there was a period where it was cheaper to send gold than it was to send a Bitcoin, but those days are gone. Well, it depends Our, on the amounts because gold becomes more expensive to send if you get a larger supply of it. So if you have like a thousand bars of gold, yeah, that's true. then you're going to pay a lot of people and you have to pay insurance. You have to make sure that the people handling it are trustworthy. And I'm not even sure who has a thousand bars of gold. Well, as we just established, Putin has at least that. <laughs> so I just remembered making that comparison. Then it was obviously it was a small period of time where that was true, where it was like 50 US dollars worth of value to send a Bitcoin transaction, at least to send one that had any chance of going through. And at the time, that was one of the things that I would say is like, I'm like, oh, Bitcoin sucks because of this. And it did. It did for like a month there. It was just not very feasible as a, as a currency. It was only feasible as store value. I want to uh, clarify first my position on the gold. Could, I say gold could lose its value. Not that I think it is. Uh, I have a friend who is very high in the gold financial industry. He does a lot of commodities trading and he has an entire firm built around just kind of acquiring gold, right? And I told him that we had a lot in common. I'm like, you know, you and I are probably making our investments for the same reasons. And he thought I was insane until I broke it down to him just like you did there where I was like, you know, here's the reasons behind why you're investing in gold. And I didn't break it down as eloquently as you did, but it was, it was close. And then I said, and here's the reasons why I think that, that Bitcoin or cryptocurrency is a solid investment. And neither one is a solid investment in a utopian world where we're all getting along and all of our economies are working correctly. That's the overarching thing that definitely scares me when I go to think about it. Like everything you just said there, Russia's positioning itself, North Korea's positioning itself, China's positioning itself. The United States has a president that is positioning himself on the toilet so he can be on Twitter. Like I'm hoping that there are other people behind the scenes making political machinations, but honestly, I don't, I don't see myself living in the United States for very much longer. I have the ability to go get Irish citizenship. I probably will. So that'll be a European Union citizen. And I will be able to just kind of be outside looking in and seeing that dumpster fire go down. But it's super scary when you start to think about all the different possibilities and all the different futures that can play out. And universally, you will find people that say we're headed for disaster. Now, there are, there are people that are saying those people who are saying we're headed for disaster are wrong, but there aren't a lot of people out there that I've come across that are saying we're headed for this golden age of prosperity with our global economy, like it's always kind of this doom and gloom scenario. Like when's it coming crashing down? We're doing all these things that are kind of signaling towards it crashing down, right? We're making regulations a little bit looser. We're allowing corrupt practices to happen over the course of globalization. So Bitcoin is important because you need to have an option. You need to be able to put this in your own hands. You need to be able to see uh, Nicolas Maduro and say, yo, this guy is crazy and he's going to completely sink this country. I need to find a way to protect myself and I'm not allowed to buy the US dollar because there's a sanction. You know, I've been to uh, Havana, Cuba a couple times and I can only imagine if the, the citizens of Cuba had access to any cryptocurrency in the 60s when the United States was just crushing them for whatever reason, we would have been in a much different scenario because the wealthy people could have continued to stay wealthy and be outside of the, the social state, but it, it, that would have been an interesting experiment. The fact that we can see some people being saved by the ability to buy cryptocurrency in Venezuela, and it doesn't matter if they ban crypto, if, if they ban Bitcoin in Venezuela, it doesn't matter because somebody's mining it in China, somebody's mining it in the United States. Their network lives on. If, some, if the rest of the world says you're not allowed to accept the Venezuelan currency, then you know, it's not like somebody can be in their basement and mine for you and make it so that you can create your transactions. So Bitcoin is the necessary alternative and it may not ever be mainstream. I think it will, but 
right now it doesn't have that chance because I, every time I send a Bitcoin transaction, I'm scared out of my mind. I'm going to do something wrong and lose all my money. And I know what I'm doing. So the people who don't know what they're doing are going to be completely intimidated. So it's not anytime soon, but at some point, one of these countries like, God forbid, North Korea, that made a good investment in Bitcoin may position themselves as more of a world power. And it's another example of talking about North Korea, Kim Jong-un making a rational decision, even though he appears completely irrational to the outside world. So there's this weird dichotomy there where they're either a cult and he's the cult leader and he's about to do something crazy, or he's thinking completely irrationally and he's not going to do anything crazy. And I don't know which one it is. I don't think anybody knows which one it is, but he did bring Dennis Rodman there. So who knows? All right. All right, Brent, enough, enough. This is a crypto podcast. Specifically, we're talking about Bitcoin. It's on the Bitcoin Takeover podcast, not the Russia Takeover podcast or whatever you were talking about. We don't need to hear about North Korea or any of that BS. Uh, but if you do want to hear that stuff, there's another hour and a half of that episode. It does. We do talk about the different sociopolitical goings on, and we do talk about a lot more crypto, Bitcoin in particular, and different projects. So check it out at the Bitcoin takeover, it's bitcoin-takeover.com, and uh, it, it, it won't be released just yet. I think there's one more episode to record after me, and then he might go through, edit them all, and then release them all at the same time. So if you wanted to hear that, go there, or you can become a member of the Patreon. All Patreon members do have access to it. It's not going to be particularly clean and edited, but it will be there. So... I'm looking forward to hearing the feedback on this one, and I'll see everybody again tomorrow on Flagship Friday. And, of course, remember, we are not financial advisors, neither myself nor Vlad. We are, well, I'm an idiot. He seemed to know what he was talking about, actually, for some things. So, uh, all investments have inherent risk. Please do your own research. This is for entertainment purposes only. Never investment more than you can afford to leave.